1948, beavers were causing problems with their increasing population and causing further problems with local irrigation systems and orchards destruction. So what did we do? Live trap them and relocate them into the wilderness, of course. Damn it. Beaver drop. Welcome to another episode of Comic Syndicate. Check them out at comicsyndicate.podbean.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Josiah and Adam. Welcome to another episode of Deep Dives and Rabbit Holes, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything. I'm your host, Josias at For the Villain on Twitter at comic underscore syndicate on Instagram. What's up, guys? Uh, happy Fourth of July. Who works on their day off? All right, guys. Uh, if you guys are new to the show, this is a topical breakdown of any thing really uh going deep diving everywhere we can about a specific topic i came across this one listening to a podcast and i'm like this is some bullshit this did not happen if you guys hear a lot of beeping and a lot of fireworks guess what it is fourth of july actually not weekend it's fourth of july so continuing on we have a here you go beaver drop or damn it, I don't know. Part one, why did beavers need to be relocated? What was the reason, the outcome, and the answer? So I'd mentioned a podcast I listened to uh, earlier, which gave me this weird spark. And I'm like, well, let's deep dive this because I knew a little bit about it. And it was intriguing enough for me to be, I don't know, just to fucking want to fucking learn more like how the fuck, why the fuck. Hopefully you guys enjoy this one. The Economic History of the Fur Trade, 1670 to 1870. It started in the 1480s, by the way. After all the research I did, it started from the 16th to 18th century. Um, So once depleted in Europe, they came to America for the abundance of, and this is the topic, the demand for beaver hats. The main cause of the rising beaver pelt prices in England and France was the increasing demand for beaver hats, which included hats made exclusively with beaver wool and referred to as quote-unquote beaver hats, and those hats containing a combination of beaver and lower-cost wool, such as rabbit. These were called felt hats. Unfortunately, aggregate consumption series for the 18th century Europe are not available. We do, however, have Gregory King's contemporary work for England, which provides a good starting in point. In a table entitled Annual Consumption of Apparel, which came out in 1688, King calculated that consumption of all types of hats was about 3.3 million, or nearly, nearly one hat per person. King also included a second category. Caps of all sorts for which he estimated consumption at 1.6 million. This is a research now by 1991. This means that early as 1700, the potential market for hats in England alone was nearly 5 million per year. Over the next century, the I'm sorry, the rising demand for beaver pelts was a result of a number of factors, including including population growth, a greater export market, a shift toward beaver hats made from other materials, and a shift from caps 
hats. The British export data indicate that demand for beaver hats was growing not just in England, but in Europe as well. In 1700, a modest 69,500 beaver hats were exported from England, and almost the same number of felt hats. But by 1760, slightly over 500,000 beaver hats and 370,000 felt hats were shipped from English ports. This was a report from 1943. In total, over the 70 years to 1770, 21 million beaver and felt hats were exported from England. In addition to the final product, England exported the raw material beaver pelts. In 1760, ooh, 15,000 pounds in beaver pelts, and that's an uh, actual cash number. 15,000 pounds in beaver pelts were exported along with a range of other furs. The hats and the pelts tended to go to different parts of Europe. Raw pelts were shipped mainly to Northern Europe, including Germany, Flanders, Holland, and Russia. Whereas hats went to the, south, um, to the Southern European markets of Spain and Portugal. In 1750, Germany imported 16 thousand and five hundred beaver hats while Spain imported one hundred and ten thousand and Portugal one hundred and seventy five thousand and again a study in 1943. Over the first six decades of the 18th century these markets grew dramatically such that the value of beaver hats sales to Portugal was eighty nine thousand pounds and I should have crunched the numbers maybe I, I did a terrible job deep diving this one but calculate eighty nine thousand pounds how much money is that in today's currency which now representing about three hundred thousand hats or two-thirds of the entire export trade European interme intermediaries in the fur trade by the 18th century the demand for furs in Europe was being met mainly by exports from North America with intermediaries playing an essential role. The American trade, which moved along the main water systems, was organized largely through chartered companies. At the far north, operating out of Hudson Bay, was the Hudson Bay's company, chartered in 1670. Uh, the... Oh, the Compagnie Occident, I don't know French, founded in 1718, was the most successful of a series of a monopoly of French companies. It operated through the St. Lawrence River and in the region of eastern of the Eastern Great Lakes. Do you guys know where the Great Lakes are, though? Michigan. There was also an English trade through Albany and New York and a French trade down the Mississippi. The Hudson's Bay's company and the Compagnie O'Occident, uh, it sounds weird, O'Occident, uh, although similar in title, had very internal structures. The English trade was organized along hier hierarchical lines with salaried managers, whereas the French monopoly issued licenses or leased out to the use of its posts. The structure of the English company allowed for more control from the London head office, but required systems that could monitor managers of the trading post. Uh, okay, the leasing and licensing arrangements of the French made monitoring unnecessary, but led to a system where the center had little influence over the conduct of trade. The French and English were distinguished as well by how they interacted with the natives. 
The Hudson Bay's company established posts around the bay and waited for the Indians, often middlemen, to come to them. The French, by contrast, moved into the interior, directing trading with the Indians who harvested the furs. The French arrangement was more conductive or conducive to expansion, and by the end of the 17th century, they had moved beyond the St. Lawrence and Ottawa rivers into the Great Western Lakes region. Later, they established posts in the heart of the Hudson Bay in Hinterland, and in addition, the French explored the river systems to the south, setting up a post at the mouth of the Mississippi. As noted earlier after Jay's treaty was signed, the French were replaced in the Mississippi region by U.S. interests, which later formed the American Fur Company. Do you guys see where this is going? There is a longer story that encompasses this small topic. But hear me out, please. The English takeover of New France at the end of the French and Indian Wars in 1763 did not, at first, fundamentally change the structure of trade. Rather, French management was replaced by Scottish and English English merchants uh, operating in Montreal. But within a decade, the Montreal trade was reorganized into partnerships between merchants in Montreal and traders who wintered in the interior. The most important of these arrangements led to the formation of the Northwest Company, which for the first two decades of the 19th century competed with Hudson's Bay's company. By the early decades of the 19th century, the Hudson's Bay Company, the Northwest Company, and the American Fur Company had... Combined, a system of trading posts across North America, including posts in Oregon and British Columbia and on the Mackenzie River. In 1821, the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company merged under the name of the Hudson's Bay Company. The Hudson's Bay's company then ran the trade as as a monsompany until the late oh, monsompany. Okay. Or maybe Monopoly. I don't know. It might have read wrong. Until the late 1840s when it began facing serious competition from trappers to the south. Bear with me, guys. My apologies. The company's role in the Northwest changed again with the Canadian Confederation in 1867. Over the next decades, treaties were signed with many of the northern tribes, forever changing the old fur trade in Canada. Here we go. The supply of furs. The harvesting of beaver. And depletion. Now, I know you guys are asking yourselves, why is this motherfucker talking about beavers? Well, beaver uh, are interesting to the story in particular, and I'm getting there. During the 18th century, the changing technology of felt production and the growing demand for felt uh, hats were met by attempts to increase the supply of furs, especially the supply of beaver felts. Any permanent increase, however, was ultimately dependent on the animal resource base. How that base changed over time must be a matter of speculation, since no animal counts exist from that period. So it kind of got erased, oddly. Nevertheless, the evidence we do have points to a scenario in which over-harvesting, at least in some years, gave rise to serious depletion of the beaver and possibly other animals, such as marten, that were also being traded. Why the beaver were over-harvested was closely related to the prices natives were receiving, but important as well was the nature of native property rights to the resource. So we're going to property to, to go after more beaver. Like, 
that makes sense. Okay, I'm going to continue. The beaver populations along the eastern seaboard regions of North America were depleted as the fur trade advance is widely accepted. In fact, the search for new sources of supply further west, including the region of the Hudson Bay, has been attributed, attributed in part to dwindling beaver stocks in areas where the fur trade had been long established. Although there has been little discussion of the impact of the Hudson Bay's company and the French, who traded in the region of Hudson Bay's or Hudson Bay, were, were having on the beaver stock. The remarkably complete records of the Hudson's Bay Company provide the basis for reasonable inter I'm sorry, inferences about depletion. From 1700, there's an uninterpreted annual series of fur returns at Fort Albany. The fur returns from the York factory began in 1760. These numbers, these facts, these stats, I have the links for. I'll get to this one. The beaver returns at Fort Albany and New York factory for the period 1700 to 1770 are described in figure two. Okay. At Fort Albany, the number of beaver skins over the period 1700 to 1720 averaged roughly 19,000 with wide year-to-year fluctuations. The range was about 15,000 to 30,000. After 1720 and until the late 1740s, average returns declined by about 50, oh, I'm sorry, 5,000 skins and remained within somewhat a narrower range, roughly 10,000 to 20,000 skins. All right, guys, are you guys following along? I feel like I always have to do this just to give you guys time to uh, put the numbers. And, and okay, so the depletion uh, of, of these animals is going down. Like, okay, we're not selling enough hats. Like, because guess what? Supply and demand. I mean, that's what it is. The period of relative stability was broken in the final years of the 1740s. In 1748 and 1749, returns increased to an average of nearly 23,000. So got boosted up just a bit within those years. Following these unusually strong years, the trade fell precipitously so that in 1756, fewer than 6,000 beaver pelts were received. There was a brief, brief recovery in the early 1760s, but by the end decade trade had fallen below even the mid-1750s levels. In 1770, Fort Alverney took in just 3,600 beaver pelts. This pattern, unusually large returns in the late 1740s and low returns thereafter, indicates that the beaver in the Fort Albany region were being seriously depleted. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to go into more numbers and facts and stats where you guys are going to be like, this is, this does not make sense, but it's going to make sense. So hats, uh, high society, everyone across the board, Europe, uh, for trading, uh, not even capturing, capturing, of course, but killing, of creating felt hats because it was a fashion statement back then. Now let's put on a pause right there. How do you guys feel? I love animals. Um, so now to, to see things like this where the con conservation of animals, I'm really strong on. And I'm just an animal person in general. Do you guys want to know about the felt making process? And if you said no, guess what? The transformation of beaver skins into felt and then hats was a highly skilled activity. 
The process required first that the beaver wool be separated from the guard, hairs, and the skin, and that some of the wool have open barbs, since felt required some open barbed wool in the mixture. Felt dates back to the nomads of Central Asia, who are said to have invented the process of felting and made their tents from this light and durable material. Although the art of uh, art of felting disappeared from much of Western Europe during the first millennium, felt making survived in Russia, Sweden, and Asia Minor. As a result of the medieval Crusades, felting was reintroduced through the Mediterranean into France. Circa 1962. Okay, or Crean 1962, my bad. In Russia, the felting industry was based on the European beaver. Given their long tradition of working with beaver pelts, the Russians has, have had perfected the art of combing out the short barbed hairs from among the longer guard hairs, a technology that they safeguarded. As a consequence, the early felting trades in England and France had to rely on beaver wool imported from Russia, although they also used domestic supplies of wool from other animals, such rabbit, sheep, and goat. By the end of the 17th century, Russian supplies were drying up, reflecting the serious depletion of the European beaver population. Uh, coincident with the decline in European beaver stocks was the emergence of a North American trade. North American beaver uh, was imported through agents in the English, French, and Dutch colonies. Although many of the pelts were shipped to Russia for initial processing, the growth of the beaver market in England and France led to the development of local technologies and more knowledge of the art combined. Separating the beaver wool from the felt was, was only the first step in the felting process. And I know, guys, you don't want to hear this probably. And uh, why do you think I hate going through these deep dives? Because it's like if I'm going to pull the string, I end up in dark places like these. And I, I end up in history and I'm reading shit where it's like, fuck, I don't want to know about this process. But in giving you guys the best structure of what a certain topic entails, I'm going to take you down some gnarly roads with me because... This is where I end up with. Severing the beaver rule from felt was only the first step in the felting process. It was also necessary that some of the barbs on the short hairs be raised open. On the animal, these hairs were naturally covered with keratin to prevent the barbs from opening. Thus, to make felt, the keratin had to be stripped from at least some of the hairs. The process was difficult to refine and entailed considerable experimentation by felt makers. For instance, uh, one felt maker bundled the skin in a sack of linen and boiled them for 12 hours in water containing several fatty substances and nitric acid. 1962. This is a study. Although such processes removed the keratin, they did so at the price of a lower quality wool. These are all things, by the way, I'm not a fur trader. I do not know how to make fucking felt hats. This is new to me as well. And I continue on. The opening of the North American trade not only increased the supply of skins for the felt industry, it also provided a subset of skins whose guard hairs had already been removed and the keratin broken down. Beaver pelts imported from North America were classified as either parchment beaver, 
which is dry beaver, or coat beaver, which is greasy beaver. I've had a, I've tasted the dry beaver and I've tasted the wet beaver. Uh, parchment beaver were from freshly caught animals whose skins were simply dried before being presented for trade. Coat beaver were skins that had been worn by the Indians for a year or more. With wear, the guard hairs fell out and the pelt became oily and more pliable. In addition, the keratin covering the shorter hairs were broken down. By the middle of the 17th century, hatters and felt makers came to learn that parchment and coat beaver could be combined to produce a strong, smooth, pliable, top quality, waterproof material. I'm not a hat maker. I'm not a, a, a felt maker. Until the 1720s, beaver felt was produced with relatively fixed proportions of coat and parchment skins, which led to the periodic shortages of one or the other type of pelt. The constraint was relaxed when keratin was developed. This is a chemical process by which apartment skins were transformed into a type of coat beaver. Hear me out. This is still part of the process. The original keratin formula consisted of salts of mercury diluted in nitric acid, which was brushed on the pelts. The use of mercury was a big advance, but it also had serious health consequences for hatters and felters, who were forced to breathe the mercury vapor for extended periods. Now, we did a deep dive of this one a long time ago. Expressions. Why do we have expressions addressed to the nines uh, as mad as a hatter? We've kind of brushed upon these. This is interesting. The expression mad as a hatter dates from this period as the vapor attacked the nervous system of these workers. All right, guys. Now, we have the fur trade that went down for uh, several centuries. Um, that went down from early on from the 14th to the 18th and early 19th century, which honestly were a thing. The 18th century, we'll say. Now, I have more numbers, stats, dates, and the numbers are insane, and I'm getting there. So... Uh, settlers, uh, the beaver trade out in, in America. Now we, let's shoot to North America. The beaver of the beaver, the beaver across the world. Uh, honestly, uh, Europe of, of, uh, fuck Michigan area of the Canadian border got destroyed and depleted because of a fashion statement. Now, once we realized, and we didn't realize this, the United States, for a long time. By the time the U.S. realized, like, the conservation of animals and what it does for the biodiversity of, of ecosystems and the effect, the cause and effect it can have on, again, the ecosystem. I'm a nerd, yes, and, and these are all things you guys have learned in school, and hopefully they're still teaching these. I've been out of school for quite a while. Very interesting. So, now, by the early 19th century, granted, still felt hats, wool hats, uh, beaver hats. Uh, up until the 1960s, let's talk about wool scarves. Let's talk about fox fucking hats. Let's talk about uh, box uh, wolf 
um, char shawls that women used to wear, uh, um, all that shit. Where honestly, Peta kind of got involved, and that's another rabbit hole. Trust me, that I wanted to go into, but we're not gonna hit it yet. So what happened? So the U.S. finally has this uh, this issue now, because by this point, all right. The beaver kind of have an effect on the ecosystem and the world. So this is why this whole process of, of, of this topic came from. And hear me out. I want to cut it short. Perishing beavers into Idaho's wilderness. Yes, it really happened. Idaho fishing game officers loaded a beaver into a wooden box before he's loaded on a plane and dropped into the Idaho backcountry. All right, do I want to give you guys some background on this one? Yes. Okay. So by this point now, we have limited regulation on on how we massacre beavers for their felt. I mean, for the most part. And we know how trappers, traders still work. And it sucks um, when 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 elephants get their tusks removed from them, um, when sharks just get killed and massacred, when wolves are being slaughtered now, which which is a thing in the world. If you pay attention to to what's going on, and you want to be con conservationalist to some certain degree where you have empathy for animals and creatures and the world around you and the ecosystem and the world and what happens that's just a a weird thing that we need to be aware of so again um this is during that time uh, again 70 years ago by now so early 1700s uh in idaho the population of beaver had grown exponentially to the point where they say all right dude now they're just a fucking pest now they're just and i'm gonna go into the rodent thing they're rodents they're pests we don't need these they're destroying our our livestock they're they're destroying our orchard fields let's get rid of these motherfuckers okay so how do we get rid of these? Well, let's transport these. All of these in the city, they're fucking up our agriculture. They're they're fucking up our dams. So let's just send them away. This is in Idaho, by the way. So they want to send these creatures in abundance. Now, let's not kill them because at least we're saving them. Let's send them to the back wilderness. Let's just kick them away. I mean, do you guys see this happening in the world right now? Okay. So... They at first transport these creatures on. Okay, well, how do we do it? Well, you know what? Fuck it. Let's let's put them in fucking boxes. And you know what? Let's transport them. Not cars. We don't need to waste gas. Let's transport them on fucking horseback, which they did at first. And once uh, the beavers were freaking out in a box on a horseback, like the beaver kind of said to itself, I don't know what this is. But, like, I don't like this galloping shit, and I don't like this box shit. So they find their way out of these boxes, and they kind of go nuts because, guess what? You're in a box, and you're on a horseback. And you've never been on a horse because, guess what? You're a fucking beaver. So this stops working after however long they tried it. And I should have the number on there for that. But, 
experiment number one does not go well at all. At all. Um, beavers are attacking fucking horses. They're nipping at them like, what the fuck are you? Horses are freaking out. Horses are freaking balls over beavers. I know that's an interesting thing to say, but that is what happened. Now, I want to go into this a little bit more deeper. And this is the process. Like, I have you guys ever heard of this before? Oh my god, Idaho fishing game officers loaded a beaver now into a wooden box before he's loaded on a plane and dropped into the Idaho backcountry. So, these guys say, alright, alright, these horses, these beavers and boxes on horses is not working. What do we do? And I'm going to go into the breakdown of that one still. More than 60 years ago, Idaho Fish and Game dropped beavers out of a plane and parachuted them into the state's backcountry. The little-known piece of Idaho history stars a crafty fish and game officer and a plucky male beaver named Geronimo. Poor fucking beaver. Idaho Fish and Game has always struggled with the problem beavers, those critters who get too close or too used to the city life. Trapping and rehoming them into the wild can be tough. It's, it's expensive, and it's hard to find good habitat for the beavers. That was also true back in 1948, where this one-of-a-kind story begins. It was just after World War II, and people had discovered what a beautiful place McCall and Payette Lake were. Okay, so I deal in, well, I deal with my work. I, I know states, and I, and I know counties. McCall and Payette Lake were. Uh, Idaho Fish and Games, Stephen Labenthal says people started building homes and in the process kind of moved into where the beavers had been doing their things for decades, centuries, and beavers became the problem, Limenthal says. Answer, Elmo Heder. Heder worked for Idaho Fish and Game in the McCall area. He had experience with the beavers and it was his job to find a solution. Heder knew that the Chamberlain Basin was the perfect place for the beavers. The animals would be away from people, and their natural activity would be beneficial to the habitat there. He says, quote unquote, The trouble is the Chamberlain Basin is in what is now the Frank Church River of no return wilderness area, and there really aren't any, and weren't any roads. Now, all right, let's rock and roll, guys. Heater thought about packing the beavers into the wilderness, but it turns out beavers and mules don't mix. My bad, guys. I said horses. Okay, mules and beaver don't mix. Horses and mules <laughs> become spooky and quarrelsome when loaded with a struggling, adorous pair of live beavers. These problems involve further handling and too frequently, frequently result in a loss of beavers. Transporting beavers are reported by Elmo W. Heder in the Journal of Wildlife Management. Heder knew that there was a surplus of parachutes from World War II. And he had an idea. What if he dropped the beavers from a plane into the backcountry? Sounds crazy. So crazy, it was actually a question on a recent episode of NPR's Beavers in Wooden Boxes Dropped from a Plane into the Frank Church Wilderness start to Start a New Life. Alright guys, that's not where I got this one from. But if you guys are more intrigued, let me continue on and I'm going to give you some, some interesting links to, to pull up. But Heder knew it would solve the problem in McCall, help the habitat at Chamberlain, make good use of the parachutes, and save money. 
the estimated cost for dropping four beavers from a plane was around thirty dollars in nineteen forty eight that's about two hundred and ninety four dollars in today's dollars all right so we have <laughs> diagrams of what it looks like this diagram shows the specific box header used to drop the beavers into the backcountry. Now they had a plan, Header had to figure out how to drop the beavers safely. First idea, a woven willow box. Once they hit the ground with the beaver inside, the animal could chew its way to freedom. Go, little guy, survive. But Limerthal said that didn't work. Poor little guy. The beavers went to work immediately upon being put into one of these boxes, and it was feared they might chew their way out of out while dropping from the sky so these motherfuckers are like i don't know why it feels like like i'm so high up in the air and i don't even know why i have a feeling i'm so high up in the air because i'm a beaver i don't belong high up in the air they started eating through uh the boxes in the first case scenario so header came up with a specially designed wooden box that would open upon impact he tested it first with some dummy weights. Then he found an older male beaver who becomes his test pilot. Header named him Geronimo. And Geronimo went through a series of tests to see how this plan would work, says Lemonthal. Header dropped Geronimo on a landing field over and over and over again. Poor fucking beaver, dude. Each time, Geronimo popped out of the box, was caught by handlers, and put back inside for another... Poor beaver, dude poor fellow and this is the story and actually this is the article not just story he finally became <laughs> he finally became resigned and as soon as we approached him would crawl back into his box ready to go aloft again so they trained this motherfucker transplanting beavers a report by elmo w header in the journal of wildlife management once header was satisfied it was time to put his plan into action and Geronimo's reward for all his hard work was to be the first male beaver on a first-class seat on a plane to Chamberlain Basin. And this is a quote. He was sent to his own little piece of paradise with three lovely young beavers. You know what? With three, says Lee Three lovely female beavers. Oh, my God, dude. This sounds like, I, I can't write this any better, guys. Like, really. Like, come on. Once they hit the ground, it took Geronimo a little while to figure out his parachuting days were over. I mean, he looks over and he sees three young beaver. And what are you going to do? I mean, but he soon created a colony with his lady friends. Well, there you go. Uh, more beavers followed Geronimo. 76 in all were dropped into the basin. All but one. Okay, and did you guys go onto YouTube and type in uh, parachuting beavers? I'm not fucking kidding you. Put this on pause and type in parachuting beavers. It's not a joke. All but one survived the drop and went to work and created some amazing habitat that is part of what what is now the largest protected roadless, roadless forest in the lower 48 states, says Liementhal. Liementhal says he's not surely why the project didn't continue past 1948. Um, maybe because it's called cruelty to animals? But again, PETA is not established by this point necessarily. But my assumption is that the key uh, is that they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish in the area, and there was no need to continue. How did Heder feel about his project? The savings in man hours and the mortality of animals is quite evident. Sex racials are maintained. The beavers are healthier and in better condition to establish a colony. 
Transplanting beavers were reported by Elmo W. Heder in the Journal of Wildlife Management. Now, homeowners are encouraged to get along with beavers instead of transplanting them, Liebenthal says. It's, quote-unquote, highly unlikely something like the Great Beaver Drop of 1948 would happen today. Okay, again, PETA and, and animal cruelty, <laughs> although, again, that report that came out that it's okay now to to slaughter fucking wolves. Um, well, uh, that's a deep dive that I need to do research in, and we'll talk about another time. But he says the offspring of those pioneering beavers are likely still having and helping the habitat in the Frank Church wilderness. All right, guys. That's the story. I'm going to go into a few things real quick before I bounce out. That happened. Parachuting beavers. Have you guys heard of that story before? I heard it on a podcast and it was, uh, oh my God, I'll find it right now. And I'm like, this is bullshit. And once I did research, I'm like, holy shit, this fucking happened. Oh my God, you put these on fucking horses and mules and this did not work. Okay. But doing research for you guys, I went down a few rabbit holes. <clears throat> The rise in extinction, extinction, sorry, activism, beaver dams, beavers, news article. Number one, beaver dams, good for birds. The songbird has a friend in the beaver. According to a study of the, by the Wildlife Conservation Society, the busy, the busy beaver's signature dams provided a critical habitat for a variety of migratory songbirds, particularly in the semi-arid and interior of the West. Researchers found that through dam building, beavers create ponds and stimulate growth of diverse streamside vegetation. The study found that the more dams beavers build, the more abundant and diverse local songbirds become. The study appears in the October 2008 issue of the journal Western North American Naturalist. Beaver populations once numbered in the millions in the American West, but dramatically collapsed by the 1800s due to the fur trade. Today, beavers are often considered pests when they take down trees and flood property. Their influence is still missing on most watersheds in the West. Yet this study and others suggest that beavers are very important to wildlife and to reviving the natural function of streams. Here's a quote. Beavers are an essential ecosystem engineer, said Sivzak, the study co-author and WCS conservation scientists. They help repair degraded stream habitats and their dams and associated ponds recharge local water tables and create wetlands. Zach added that because climate change is likely to cause increasing droughts in the West, beavers may become especially helpful in allowing watersheds to act, act more like sponges. The researchers conducted their study in Wyoming where beaver reintroductions have occurred on both private and public lands with owner consent and interest. The study was a part of a larger effort by WCS to identify how to restore wildlife to streamside habitats in the western U.S. In 2007, WCS made history with other beaver news when an active beaver lodge was discovered in the Bronx River on the grounds of the Bronx Zoo, the first one spotted in New York City in at least two centuries. All right, guys. <clears throat> the parachuting beavers, first of all, I was stuck on that where it's like, the fuck? This is some bullshit. Um, now, I'm an animal person. And again, the last time I, I read about beavers and ecosystems as far as the beaver go was in junior high school. 
But to say I didn't learn anything from those classes about the ecosystem and how it works and functions and the biodiversity of creatures and animals and how different animals need different animals, like a symbiotic relationship almost. Um, going down this one, I, I, I went down a rabbit hole of the, the prehistoric giant beaver castroids and why they went extinct. Uh, during the Ice Age, like, that was fucking nuts. Uh, they grew up uh, to, to weigh 220 pounds and can grow as large as, as an 8-foot bear, a black bear. And I'm like, that's a ginormous beaver. Was one, and I'm like, this is fucking crazy. And then knowing about beavers and necessarily not knowing completely what it is, but I'm going to close out by this. The beaver is the largest rodent in North America and competes with its Eurasian counterpart. Now, it looks like a fucking rodent, but they look adorable. Um, but it is a rodent. For being the second largest in the world, both following the South American capybara, the European species is slightly larger on average, but the American has a larger known maximum size. Adults usually weigh from 11 to 32 kilograms, which is 24 to 71 pounds, with uh, 44 pounds being a typical beaver weight. In New York, the average weight of an adult male beaver was 42 pounds, while non-native females in Finland average 40 pounds. However, adults weighed a medium of 45 pounds. The American beaver is slightly smaller in average body mass than the Eurasian species. All right, guys. Like the capybara, the beaver is semi-aquatic. The beaver has many traits suited to this lifestyle. It has a large, flat, paddle-shaped tail and large, webbed hind feet. The unwebbed front paws are similar with claws. The fore paws are highly dexterous and are used both for digging and to fold individual leaves into their mouth and to rotate small, pencil-sized stems as they gnaw off bark. The eyes are covered by, ooh, nice, ooh, okay, by a nixitating membrane, which allows the beaver to see underwater. The nostrils and ears are sealed while submerged. Their lips can be closed behind their front teeth so that they can continue to gnaw underwater. A thick layer of fat under its skin insulates the beaver from its cold water environment. The beaver's fur consists of long, coarse outer hairs and short, finer inner hairs. The fur has a range of colors, but usually is dark brown. Scent glands near the genitals secrete an oily substance known as castoreum, which the beaver uses to waterproof its fur. There is also another set of oil glands producing unique chemical identifiers in the form of waxy esters and fatty acids. The lush workable fur was made into a number of products, most notably hats. Depends, uh, demand for furs and hats drove beavers nearly to the point of extinction in the North American species. And the North American species was uh, saved principally by a sudden change of style. Alright, this is going to be a tail end of it, guys. Just hear me out. The beaver possesses continuously or endlessly growing incisors and is a, and is a hindgut fermenter whose sesame populated by symbiotic bacteria 
There you go. Helps to digest plant-based material. These traits are not unique to beavers and are in fact present amongst all rodents. They did not know that. Nonetheless, the beaver is remarkably specialized for the efficient digestion of its... Ooh, like... Well, give me one second. Lignocellulose-heavy diet. I'm pretty sure I butchered that, guys. Brain anatomy of the beaver is not particularly spe specialized for its semi-aquatic life history. The brain masses of beaver wane... 11.7 and 7.7, I'm sorry, 17 kilograms are 41 and 45 grams specifically, I know. Uh, tail end still, guys, dam building. The purpose of the dam is to create deep water refugia, enabling the beaver to escape from predators. When deep water is already present in lakes, rivers, or larger streams, the beaver may dwell in a bank burrow and bank lodge with an underwater entrance. The beaver dam is constructed using branches from the trees the beavers cut down, as well as rocks, grass, and mud. Where naturally occurring woody material is limiting, beavers may build their dams largely of rocks. The inner bark Twigs, shoots, and leaves of such trees are also important, an important part of the beaver's diet. The trees are cut down using two strong, their strong incisor teeth. Uh, their front paws are used for digging and carrying and placing materials. The sound of running water. Trip out on this. This is a huge thing for them. The sound of running water dictates when and where a beaver builds its dam. They have this innate ability. It's triggered. It's instilled in them, in their DNA, where if they hear water running, they look around like, do you hear that? I have to fix that. That is what they do. They, they have to stop this running water and that is instilled in them. And it's going to make sense for the biodiversity and, and the, the, the ecosystem and how it works and functions together. But that's what they do. They have to stop running water. Dictates when and where a beaver build its stem. Besides providing a safe home for the beaver, beaver ponds also provide habitat for waterfowl fish, and other aquatic animals. Their dams help reduce soil erosion and can help reduce flooding. However, beaver dams are not permanent and depend on the beaver's continued presence for their maintenance. Beavers generally concentrate on building and repairing dams in the fall and in preparation for the coming winter. In northern areas, they often do not repair branches, breaches, I'm sorry, in the dam made by otters, and sometimes breach the dam themselves and lower the water level in the pond to create more breathing space under the ice or get easier access to trees below the dam. All right, that's what they do. Beavers are best known for their dam building. They maintain their pond habitat by reaching quickly to the sound of running water. All right, guys, uh, that's what they do. And how it affects other animals. And they create a stream and pond for wildlife to flourish. And for birds to come along and chirp their songs. And you know what? Yes, it sounds like a calling for salmon. But when salmon get caught up in these ponds. And these salmon grow to become large salmon. And it's a feast for other animals in the ecosystem. It's not a bad fucking thing. 
and they're rodents, but there is so much more to these fucking creatures. I'm like, these motherfuckers jumped off of a parachute. Josias has not even jumped out of a fucking parachute, but holy fuck. Um, these motherfuckers work. I mean, they work a lot. I mean, that's all I got. Damn it. <laughs>